Cast. First, you have to be comfortable being visionary, which means you have to be willing to dream and allow your people to dream mm-hmm. and come up with crazy ideas and come to you with all kinds of interesting kind of, you know, in a state of wonder about what could we do with this company or what do you think the industry is going to do? What do you think? And not about tomorrow, but like in two years or three years. Hi, and welcome to Deep Leadership. I'm your host, John Rennie. Well, I hope all is well with you today. It is another beautiful day here in North Carolina, and this episode is brought to you by our sponsors, Jeremy Clevenger Fitness and the Sasquatch Flag Company. Both of these sponsors help me bring these shows to you each and every week, so I encourage you to click on their links below and check them out. I have another great show lined up for you today, but before we get started, I just want to remind you to check out the leadership books I've written on either Amazon or my website, johnsrennie.com. This year, I'm offering a new way to purchase all of my books for a discount. I bundled the books into what I call the Qualified Watchstander series, and you get all three books for 15% off the individual prices. This offer is only available on my website, so check it out if you're looking to step up your leadership game this year. Also, I wanted to remind you that Deep Leadership is ranked as a top 100 management podcast in the U.S., and I wanted to thank each and every one of you for listening in each week and sharing these episodes with your friends. You have helped this podcast grow into a top-performing show, so thank you very much. Well, that is it. Today, we're going to be talking about thinking and leading more strategically, and my guest is former Navy SEAL author and business leader Marty Strong. Marty is the author of a new book called Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization. Marty helps us understand what it takes to become a more visionary leader. No matter what kind of leader you are, you need to be thinking more strategically, and this conversation will help you get on the right path. So are you ready to dive in? Let's get started. Welcome to Deep Leadership. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former Cold War submarine officer who spent 20 plus years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Are you ready for some real world actionable advice from John as well as his expert guests? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. The show starts right now. Welcome to the Deep Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Marty Strong. Marty has been a leader and business consultant for decades, first in uniform as a combat-decorated Navy SEAL, and then in commercial business. He is a thought-provoking author, speaker, and leadership expert. Marty's latest book is called Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization. Now, this book helps leaders think and lead more strategically. And I'm excited to have him on the show to talk about the idea of strategic leadership. So, Marty. Welcome to the show. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's it's an honor to have you, sir. And I'm I'm interested in this topic of strategic leadership. So, and who better to get on the show but the guy that just wrote the book on it? So, I'm really excited about this. But I wanted to dive in first a little bit uh, about your career. You spent 20 years as a Navy SEAL, and then you went into business. Uh, tell us about your background and how your military experience shaped you as a leader. So interestingly, the uh, you know one thing kind of leads into the other in life. I, my favorite quote is from uh, Louis Pasteur: "It's chance favors the prepared mind." And the way my life has turned out, it always seems to be the case. The thing that I'm training to, that the way I'm being treated, the way I'm dealing with adversity that I don't appreciate at the time, suddenly becomes the strength later on that I needed, and the lessons that I learned that I had to apply in a completely different place and a different, maybe sometimes a different vocation. 
So I've kind of learned to just roll with it. I, I came out of a broken family, divorced kid. So I had a lot of psychological resilience, not appreciating it, obviously, as a kid. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, I'm in SEAL training. It turns out that the people that make it through SEAL training or any special operations selection course tend to be really, really uh, high on the psychological resilience scale. And so if I hadn't gone through that, I probably wouldn't have made it through SEAL training. I would have been psychologically, I guess, inoculated against self-doubt and a lot of the other things that I had to deal with as a teenager. Finally, I had to come to grips with and decide I'm going to be my own person. I'm going to chart my own path. And so when other people are telling you to quit or other people around you are quitting and trying to talk you into quitting, it just never resonated with me. So that allowed me you know, to get through the SEAL uh, process. Uh, I was a SEAL for 10 years as an enlisted SEAL, got my undergraduate degree in business during that time frame, and then I went to Officers Canada School, spent the next 10 years as an officer in the SEAL teams, and again, ended up getting my master's in management during that time frame. So that's kind of the, the quick version of those 20 years, and I was going to be a lawyer, took the LSAT that I was going to do that. A friend of mine who was in financial services talked me out of it, and um Again, I know we're going to talk about strategy and being strategic. I, I was all over the place. So I said, yeah, the hell, the heck with the, you know, law school. I'm just going to go do this, you know. And uh, I ended up with uh, one company for a couple of years and then shipped it over to United Bank of Switzerland, became a portfolio manager and managed money and clients and things like that, all in for about seven and a half years in that industry. And again, I realized when I started, I didn't know how to sell. I'd never been taught how to sell. It wasn't in any of the, it wasn't in my undergrad course. It wasn't my graduate course. It wasn't a class on how to sell anything. And anybody that's in civilian life knows that that's kind of key to getting anything across, even if you're just trying to get somebody to marry you. So I had to learn how to sell. And, and then as I was struggling to figure out how to sell, a guy came in who was a, a mutual fund wholesaler and he said, what are you doing? How are you doing? And I said, I'm cold calling all day long and I'm walking the roads, knocking on doors, and I'm doing, you know, conventions, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, I think. And he said, have you ever done seminars? Mm. Well, no, I don't, I don't have any, I don't know anybody yet. And he goes, well, we'll help you out. We'll give, we'll buy you a list and then we'll show you how to do the invitations and all that kind of stuff. And we'll even stand up there with you in the first one and kick it off. And he did. It turns out I was really good at seminars because I was really good at public speaking. I had been a trainer. I'd, I'd been a, a trainer in the schoolhouse, in the SEALs. I was one of the main um, briefing officers at one time for the Admiral charge of all the SEALs. I'd go on road shows and everything. I'd been to 36 combat missions and I had to do at least 20 high-end briefings. You know, Colin Powell, lots of people. I was very comfortable doing that, even though I didn't know how to sell. And it turned out people didn't care about the sell pitch. They just wanted to trust the person in front of them. And, when I, and so here I was again. I was doing well in this profession because of something that I didn't understand. I thought all those dog and pony trips all over the place for the Navy were just the big pain in the ass. I never saw any value to it. I wanted to be back with the guys with the guns and everything. And lo and behold, there you go. Chance favors the prepared mind. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned, you know, your upbringing and how that prepared you to deal with the rigors of, of SEAL training. And, and, and then the, and then your experiences in the SEAL training help you be successful in the business world. It's really interesting that, that the parallels with that. And again, that it's, no surprise that that quote is your favorite because it seems like it's made sense in your life. Yes, yeah. it really has. For sure. What were some of the differences you noticed when you, you did 20 years in the military and you 
there's a certain way we do things in the military, right? And then you come out into these, you know, companies, civilian companies, you're, you're dealing now with maybe not a lot of veterans, not a lot of people with military experience. What was that like for you? And what were some of the early frustrations you had in, in the business world? Because I know I had some of those myself when I first came into the world. I think the first thing that hit me was the source of motivation to show up. For an average person in, in commercial business, and I don't, and there's nothing wrong with this. This is just the way it's supposed to be for regular people, right? Your your point is to make a living, to pay your bills, to have enough to have fun, take care of your family. And if you don't own the business, that's that's pretty much your motivation, right? And in the military, especially like you know, you're in the submarine service, that's an elite service, the SEALs, you're in a much smaller, highly, highly um uh, selected kind of group of people. So they're already down selected for certain attributes. And one of them is being um, very motivated, self-motivated. They don't need a lot of pushing and pulling and, and, and coaching and, and speeches to get them fired up. They all focus on the mission and they all focus on making each other stronger because the stronger each of each of them are as an individual and as a team, the stronger the unit, the more likely they're going to complete the mission, which is the whole motivation. And not in, not in a, kind of a World War II black and white movie kind of way where you just salute and do it because you're, you're being ordered to. There's an intrinsic passion to be that good and do that well as an individual and as a group. Not in existence in most most of the rest of the... <laughs> it's just, and I get it. I mean, we're not asking people to make decisions about God and country and life and limb and all that. It's it's the, the consequences of failure or you know money, maybe, maybe you'll lose your job, but that's nowhere near as bad, right? Um. You do run into people, especially people that are business owners, that are passionate like that. And unfortunately, they have a hard time getting anybody else to be as fired up because not everybody else has their, you know, their home equity <laughs> stuck in the new company that they're hoping it, it turns out they're there to be an employee. So that was a big one. Uh, the second one, which I actually found out, even though I wasn't running a company yet, uh, my clients they really needed leadership in crisis. Every time the market would go down, my phone would blow up. And later on, when I had as many as 1,600 you know, accounts, on, on a bad day or a bad week, I mean, my phone would blow up and people would just show up at the door. They wanted, they wanted hand-holding, they wanted explanations, they wanted me to make them feel better, they wanted me to explain. Because it was at a time where it was the, the, uh, the TV pundits were really, really getting in everybody's face and making crazy predictions just to get eyeballs on screens. Right, right. And uh, and it was very frustrating because they were making things up or they were saying things, and they're still doing it today. I watch CNBC in the morning, and and you know I listen to it, and it's kind of interesting. I look more for the big picture moves rather than listening to their their opinion of it. But I realized, other than being able to communicate and give seminars and garner trust, the other attribute that came over from being a SEAL was leadership in crisis, poise under pressure and stress. I could sit there in a room and they'd be freaking out and I, and they'd look at me and I'd be chill and I'd be okay. And I'd walk them through their plan. And by the time I was done talking about the plan that we put in place to, to deal with things like this, like asset allocation and all this stuff, they go, wow, I'm so glad I came here. I'm so glad I talked to you. I'm so glad I came here and gave you my money, you know, and they'd walk out and that would be exhausting for me, but that was another skill set. And it was always, a, it was surprising to me how fragile these people were when it came to risk. Now, everybody's got a different opinion about money. It's very emotional. But most of my clients were self-made people. They weren't, they didn't get it in the lottery. They, they actually built businesses and gone through, but they, this is the kind of stress they weren't prepared for. Mm. 
Interesting. You know, it's it's funny because I, you know, I do hire a lot of veterans, in, you know, over the years. And one of the reasons I like veterans is because of that reason that typically they have been through worse. <laughs> so and so the problems we face in business are are minor compared to some of the things they've been through, you know. And I think, you know, a lot of times I always say like the 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 some of the things I went through in the Navy were were I've never experienced anything like that in the civilian world. So so it's like I it's almost like at the high watermark, you've done this. So what you're being asked to do now is is so much less than that. So you feel like I've got that uh, I've got that ability to to overcome this because I've done something in my past that has been challenging. Yeah. It, it yeah. I, I still put it in that psychological resilience. You build up scar tissue in categories as you're exposed to that. And if you haven't been exposed to that category, you you suffer and then you, go, you get over it and then you get stronger and then you have scar tissue and yeah. then you can't then you can't really be hurt in that category. And yeah, I got seals working for me and. You know, something really bad happens to a business, or whatever. The first thing that comes out of almost anybody's mouth is, "Well, at least nobody's shooting at us." Yeah. To prove yeah. your point, I mean, it's actually something people say out loud on a regular yeah. basis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we, we will say like, "Well, at least it's not coming up into periscope depth in the middle of a winter storm, right?" So, exactly. Yeah. So, I love it. Um, so, I wanted to touch. We're going to talk about strategic leadership, but I want to touch on your first book a little bit because you talk about something in that first book. It's kind of interesting. That first book is called "Be Nimble: How the Creative Navy Seal Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business." I just thought it would uh, give, since you're on the show, to to explain a little bit of what that creative Navy SEAL mindset is and what it looks like, because I think that's kind of special. So put it as, as quickly as I can, SEALs and other special operations elite forces are not the cartoon character you see in TV and in, uh, in the movies. And with, what they are, which is counterintuitive to, to most people, is they, they have very, very high IQs. They have very, very high uh, aptitude scores equal to things like missile technicians, fire control technicians, at the very top of what the Navy looks for, for their high-tech systems. They have high emotional IQ. They are very, very clever. They're really, really good problem solvers. And they are, for the most part, willing to apply their imagination to almost any set of problems or issues and work it from an open mind to when you have some kind of a conclusion you could act on. And if you get a whole group of them in a room, especially as an officer, and I had a little bit of a head start on this because I'd been on the other side of the process, you have to let everybody kind of brainstorm and throw a lot of stuff up on the wall, see what sticks, and then you start to crystallize it, more facilitating all that input, and eventually get it down to, okay, we only have so much more time before we have to make a decision on what we're going to do. And then you end up with some kind of a multi-phase plan that everybody feels pretty comfortable with. But everybody can... Everybody can participate. The most junior guy, doesn't matter how much time he has. There may be three combat veterans, but they may be, you know, from from a desert war, and we're talking about something that's going to happen in the jungle. So it's a moot point that they were in, you know, in combat. And and then you get and you don't get it's unconventional warfare, so you don't get the same mission every single solitary time. For the most part, you get a new problem set. So you really can't do it any other way, and you really can't do it with another kind of person or kind of brain. You have to have that kind of a mindset. So then. You know, and they didn't have a lot of movies and TVs and stuff, TV shows and stuff about SEALs, even books until the late 90s. So you can imagine all of us that were in that and the cartoon kind of character that were all like hyper aggressive and we're always high-fiving and grinning and wearing beards and tattoos and stuff. And it's kind of this weird caricature. That's not it at all. And so in Be Nimble, I, I was trying to take 
that mindset, which is a creative mindset. It's a divergent thinking type mindset. And it's breaking and bending rules and maybe making up your own rules to get to the solution. It's having the adaptability, the flexibility, the nimbleness to do the same process all over again, maybe in a much more compressed time frame, when some of your core assumptions are gone or completely eroded when you actually show up on the target, which is about 85% of the time, by the way. Mm-hmm. You get there and it's not what they told you. It's not what you thought. And and you either have to abort or you have to decide how you're going to do it a different way. It's like pick up basketball, but you go through the same process. And I've applied that to business. I've applied that in all my coaching, mentoring to everybody that's ever worked for me and anybody that's ever asked me for advice to help them. Because you also have to be open to everybody being involved in the decision-making process as an input or an insight. I'm not talking about crowdsourcing the decision. I'm talking about crowdsourcing the information, uh, resources, the insights, and the creativity part of it. At some point, somebody's got to make the call. And it worked in the SEAL teams. It's worked in almost every company I've been in. Whenever I was in charge of a division, eventually a company, and now I'm in charge of like four companies. And uh, not everybody's comfortable with it, but it works. And so I try to put it all in one place, and that's what Be Nimble was all about. That's fantastic. And, 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 you know, that's why I want to touch on it real quick, because I think that's, it's really valuable information. You know, I, I'm seven years into a business startup. We started manufacturing business seven years ago. And I can tell you all those skills <laughs> we needed to have because because our, our plans changed. I mean, we wrote a business plan, right? Got the investment dollars. We opened up a factory. And guess what? Everything changed, right? The, the economy was different. We went into product lines that didn't work. We had customers that wouldn't open the doors for us. And so the assumptions that we had didn't work. And so we had to be we had to be creative along the way because it was a small, there was 10 of us, you know, and we had to figure yeah. it out. And uh, and I think that that's that's a powerful book and a powerful story. And I think that's, those are skills especially needed for for entrepreneurs when you're absolutely uh, very limited resources and you have, you know, a limited runway of, of funds to be able to get your business off the ground. You might have That's to change right. your plans along the way. So I just want to touch on that because I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating read and I want to encourage the listeners to take a look at that book as well. But we want, I want to dive into strategic um, leadership because I think that that is another element. It's one that we haven't talked about on the show yet and, uh, and I'm interested in it. And so this, your latest book is called Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization. So I wanted to just say, you know, you wrote this other book about the creative Navy SEAL mindset, and now you switched over to uh, strategic leadership. So why the switch? Why, why, what was the um, uh, inspiration for writing this new book? So it's kind of a one-two punch. Being able is very much into the, the existing leader or aspiring leader and how they can handle the stress and crisis of making decisions, either scaling up, scaling down for, for internal reasons, like you decided you want to double market share and everybody's got to work twice as hard with, with the same the same infrastructure, or things are going really well and you suddenly have to double infrastructure and you don't know how to do that because you've never done that before, all those kinds of things. Also, if something external impacted the business and you have to deal with that in some way, whether it's a competitive pressure, something like the pandemic, whatever, supply chain you know, crisis, and the, one of the chapters touches on thinking big picture and thinking long view. And one of my beta readers uh, was a CEO of a, of a, um, uh, a technology company. He has like 19 patents under his name. He said, you could make an entire book out of that chapter mm-hmm. because I, nobody's teaching that. They're not teaching it kind of like sales. They're not teaching applied strategic developments, applied strategic leadership 
or strategic decision-making processes in college. They're, and they're not teaching it in, in, in industry. You get to the top, this is the quote, you get to the top or somewhere near the top of an org chart where suddenly somebody says, this is one of your roles. And they go, go. Right, right. And, and you start buying books or talking to somebody else you think might know how to do it. And so it's, a, it's and there's a reason for it. There's a reason why it's not emphasized. And it was emphasized much, much more in the 20s and 30s and the 40s. Part of it is that the reason I juxtapose the strategic leadership against optimization is that optimization has been empowered and enabled by technology. So you can get a dashboard. It can tell you exactly how your company did last week, last quarter, against you know last year, same quarter, all that. And in the rearview mirror, you, you, you've got very high accuracy of what your trail looks like, right? You have nothing telling you what the future looks like. Yeah. So if you start to be trained in management school, because they do teach optimization in college, and they do teach optimization in, in industry, management starts to think that their job is to become better and better and better and more optimized about what happened. And the more they can explain that, the more they get patted on the head that they're in control of their business. And then when they have to think about next year, somebody says, well, what about next year's budget? They take this year, they flop it forward and add 3%. Every time. And they go, there you go. And, you know, past this prologue, that's it. And that's not, that's not really strategic thinking. So what I, I call it be visionary because I go through as a primer. First, you have to be comfortable being visionary, which means you have to be willing to dream and allow your people to dream mm -hmm. and come up with crazy ideas and come to you with all kinds of interesting kind of, you know, in a state of wonder about what could we do with this company? Or what do you think the industry is going to do? What do you think? And not about tomorrow, but like in two years or three years. And I tell people in the book, you envision what you look like and you do this every day, 10 minutes a day, spend 10 minutes a day, clear your mind of all your to-do lists, all your, all your problem solving, and just say, what do I want to be personally in, in two years? What do I want to look like? What do I want to feel like? What do I want to be professionally? And if you own a business or you're in charge of a business or a division large enough that you have a strategic responsibility, what do I want that to look like? You know, and what happens is as you start to practice this like any habit, it changes the way you think and the way you look at things every day. So when somebody comes to you and they line up 10 problems and they're all equal in weight, and, and it's all about the metrics and how the metrics are going to look at everything, you're actually looking at it about does it have, does it even matter? What does that got to do with what we have to deal with that's coming up on the horizon, whether it's a threat or an opportunity? So many threats are seen at the last second. And so everybody seems to be happy with reacting because they think that's the way you're supposed to. And nobody's going to, you know, nobody's going to say that I'm a bad leader because something just popped up. Well, you're a bad leader if you never anticipated. If you didn't train your staff, if you don't have enough redundant leadership, you don't have enough redundant keep key personnel. If you're one person short, you're, you're, you're one heartbeat away from disaster in that particular function or that particular talent area, you, you can be blamed as a leader. You're not preparing for anything other than tomorrow's going to be like yesterday. So the book talks about first being visionary, pushing that, that, that thought process out, looking 360. So you have three, a 360 degree view of situational awareness, create a habit every day thinking that way, then take that and convert it into an actionable business strategy and then back plan from that strategic set of object objectives. And then once you've got that battle plan, then put the optimizers on it. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. 
Leadership skills are like any other skills. You need to practice them to get better at them. Best-selling leadership author John S. Rennie knows this. That's why he's written a new book called You Have the Watch. It's a guided journal for leaders designed to take you through an entire year of leadership training. By the end of the year, you will master 50 of the most important leadership skills. If you want to have a greater impact on the results and people in your organization, go to youhavethewatch.com and pick up your copy today. This episode is brought to you by Jeremy Clevenger Fitness. As a high-performing leader, you know that leadership isn't about telling people what to do. It's about leading by example. And for most people, the one area that they're lacking when it comes to leading by example is their health and fitness. By improving your health and fitness, every other area of your life improves. But how do you get and stay fit as a busy leader? Well, you do what you've always done. You hire the best person for the job. Don't struggle on your own. Put Jeremy Clevenger on your team. Jeremy will work with you to take your physique, mindset, nutrition, habits and more to the next level with his step-by-step all-inclusive coaching program. Now I've worked with Jeremy for the past year and I'm in the best shape of my life. If you want to step up your game, reach out to Jeremy at apexperformancesystems.com to find out more and get your initial consultation scheduled with him today. This episode is brought to you by the Sasquatch Flag Company. The Sasquatch Flag Company is a family-owned business in New England that builds hand-carved American flags from seasoned white pine. Each flag is hand-built, and each star on the flag is hand-hammered and chiseled. No two flags are alike. They offer a variety of flag designs to honor the police, military, firefighters, dispatchers, and search and rescue personnel, to name a few. These stunning handmade flags look great in an office, a studio, the back porch, or above the fireplace mantle. They make the perfect gift for the veteran, first responder, or patriot in your life. Now, I love these flags, and I've been giving them as gifts for years, and I was a customer long before they became a sponsor of the show. I can't recommend them enough. So if you're looking for that perfect, uniquely American-made gift to give away, or if you want to treat yourself, go to sasquatchflags.com and get your order in today. You know, it makes me think of like uh, like Kodak and Xerox of, of big companies that were leading, leading brands in their industry, right? Focus on being more efficient. And I'm sure that they had all the KPIs and they had all the rear view metrics that they were measuring and all the bonuses were based on that. But yet the world was changing, right? And the, and there was soon going to be no need for film, you know, and, and photocopiers and things like that. And and it's like they, so maybe they weren't looking out the, the windshield, but they were looking in the rear view mirror too much. Is that probably an example of companies that weren't really thinking strategically? Yes. Yes, and there's it's also a denial of, of the laws of the universe. So I think it's Madame Curie's got a quote. I think I've got it right. The universe abhors stability. Mm. There's no such thing as stability. The universe doesn't accept stability. It's in a constant state of adjustment, evolution, de-evolution. There's nothing static. So if you actually took a deep breath and thought about that for a second, that means nothing that you're relying on right now is really going to be reliable. Mm-hmm. You are, you're not in control. What you're trying to do is you're trying to basically surf a really big wave and see how long you can stay on it. And eventually that wave is going to start to go away. And you got to find another wave. And that's why the people that are into, you know, futurists and things, they're looking for those big waves, those big trends, those big, yeah. that's what's going to sweep everybody up at some point in every industry, every industry sector, sometimes in economies, regional or national, and sometimes globally. The information's out there. It's it's there to be seen, but you got to be thinking that way to even even start to collect that as intelligence. 
It's interesting you say that because I'm seeing now since like November of last year, people reacting to ChatGBT and AI and 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 what that likely can impact all sorts of different things. I mean, everything from academics to marketing to to content creation to there's so many things that that's going to impact, and it, it's almost like we're like you said, it sort of surprised us, you know, that oh. AI is here, you know, and it could devastate my business. It could, or it could create tremendous opportunity. But I don't think, at least even myself as a business leader, was looking towards, well, that might, that might happen here soon. And when, and what's the impact? I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about, you know, you know, getting my revenues for the month, right? You know, and making, making my exactly right. sales numbers, right? So nobody was, when you saw the first cell phone, nobody thought that, uh, hey, you know what? We could do our banking like this without ever having to go into a bank. That yeah. was five years down the road. Uh, you know, all the things that we do on a on a cell phone, on a smartphone, those things when those when those first popped out, even the inventors weren't even thinking that far ahead. Those applications came from everybody just thinking about what the platform could do. The whole thing about apps, you know, it just exploded because people started yeah. thinking, "Hey!" And then if he could do it, I could do it, and I could do it with with a whole different subject area. <laughs> it's it's really great, crazy to think of because. Again, uh, I remember the, I remember the day I got my first text. Right, I was I was on a business trip and and I was supposed to meet up with uh, my head of sales and uh, and my phone buzzed and I looked down it was a text. I was like, "Well, how do you do that?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just amazing to see now we're like we we almost use words more than we do even a phone call. And, yeah, right? and it, and it's happened so much faster. I told the story the other day. I was at a company as a senior exec, and I walked through a room and I saw five or six cubicle areas. And the the desks were covered with piles of blackberries. Oh. And I realized that two years earlier, everybody had been fighting for who was rightfully uh, should get a, a company Blackberry. Right. And the reason there was piles there is because now everybody wanted the Palm Pilot. Right. Right. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. And then, then Palm Pilot didn't even get to stick around long enough to get a big pile because it went right to, you know, the iPhone. So... I see that stuff and you don't have the time you did back in, you know, the last century where it took 45 years for automobiles to be adapted and start to hit the S curve, you know, vertical. Yeah. It's, it's fast and you got to be on your, on your toes. And if you're not looking around, that train's going to hit you right in the face and, and you, you won't even be able to react to it at that point. It'll just be done. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, in the book, you talk about decision-making uh, and how a strategic leader has to do decision-making. I'm just curious to talk through some, a little bit about how we, how we make decisions in a world where we're thinking, trying to think more strategically. So again, I kind of go through this as a formula for leaders in the book on in Be Visionary. You have to, you have to deputize and then embolden your leadership team. And then they have to do the same thing to everybody else. The best situation is if you have, an, let's say you have 50 employees, you want all 50 employees, as they say in the military, to have their head on a swivel. In this case, have their brain on a swivel. Everybody should be encouraged to be thinking the way we just described. If they hear something, they see something on TV, whatever, bring it to the attention of the supervisor. Supervisors, bring it to the, get it bubbling up, right? Because when you do that, you get some really crazy insights that you actually can develop into actionable strategy or helps you either reinforce what you've been thinking is going to happen or tells you your assumptions were wrong. If you close it down to just the top people, you've, your brain power, your brain trust, you know, is a brain trust of however many people you've accepted in there. You also can't be the only guy at the top and say, 
I'm going to think all these big thoughts and then I'm going to tell everybody else what to do because everybody else has to challenge your thoughts. Everybody has to punch holes in it. I, I talk about in there that they have your dream team, the people that are thinking these big thoughts and everything, but also you have to have your, your optimizers in your, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of mindset. Right, right. You hand it to them and say, here, beat up, beat it up, see if you can break it, you know, scratch it, and and then tell me what you found. So you have to be, you have to be intellectually honest there. So that so that you're just not, you know, kind of believing your own smoke kind of a thing, you know, getting high on your dreams and all. You put those two elements together. The decision-making process is essentially a brainstorming process. It's not a single person, and it's very messy until you get, like I described earlier about the SEAL mission planning thing, it's very messy until you realize, okay, we have to come to some point where I say, I think this is where the needle's pointing. Mm. And then do we need to change anything about what we're doing? And then you put together an action plan, and you issue milestones and, and directions, and you apply resources or you redirect resources to align with that. But it's a continuum. And I don't mean that you change your your cardinal strategy for two years every day, but you should have everybody constantly looking out because you may make a mistake even on your long-term view, even if it seemed to work out and pan out before. Think of think you went through this process a month before uh, the pandemic and you did everything I'm saying and it's a wonderful outlook and you know exactly where you're going to be in 24 to 36 mm -hmm. months and you've made the shift and it's on paper and everybody's saluted and everybody's happy and they're like, yes, we know we can. And then boom. The day that you realized that the world changed, which should have been sometime around the first week of April, everybody should have been brought into a conference room and told, everything's different. We need to reinvent. You need to reimagine and reinvent. And let's brainstorm every bad thing that could possibly happen to us. Supply chain, talent, everything. And then let's say, how do we do what we do as a company with all those things broken and, and missing? Yeah. You have to be that you know, that nimble and that capable and adaptable to realize what, what reality is. This, that's the Kodak thing. Fuji was kicking their butt. You know, Fuji was coming out with digital and they said, well, we invented digital, but we they invented it for copier yeah. machines. Right. And so they said, well, you know, nobody's ever going to do that. It's always going to be film and we're better at film than Fuji. Well, then Fuji started being with film and then crushed him on the digital. So there were a bunch of people there that just didn't want to look and didn't want to recognize and didn't want to accept. Mm. So, it's a continuum. It's a decision-making process that never ends, and it starts with that 10 minutes every day thinking the big thoughts. I really like that. I like that a lot. I know, for for example, for our, our manufacturing business, we when, when the pandemic hit, one of the things that happened right away is they canceled all of, we have these, uh, we, we train the technicians all over the country. So these uh, meter, we call them meter schools, and we train, we go out physically and train technicians. Well, they shot all those training sessions down around the country. And so we opened up, we started doing free virtual meter schools. And so we just offered that as a service for people who needed to get their education, but they couldn't go to these events. And what we realized is that we were the only ones in the industry doing it. And so everybody signed, like, like I, I, I originally had like a Zoom account with 50, you know, things. I realized I had to open up to 100 people. So every time we ran it, we had, we had 100 people sign up within 24 hours every time. And we built this reputation of as being like the, the industry experts. And we were the smallest supplier in the industry. But it was like, we sort of like said, okay, what could we do differently? And it was sort of that, maybe that SEAL team creative thinking, like what could we do in this scenario? And it, it turns out that's actually what elevated our our stature as a company during the during the pandemic because we were the only ones doing it. Even though the big companies had more resources than we had, we just sort of attacked the problem with what we had, which was 
well, we have Zoom. Let's use that, you know? So, so being that nimble and thinking strategically is actually a huge differentiator. And you're right. It's a, it's odd that it's rare, but it is. Every book about black swans will tell you all the case studies. It's one third of the population of the case studies actually did what I described earlier. They came in, took a deep breath and said, the world's changed. Let's figure out what we got to do. The other two thirds went into denial for either shorter or longer periods of time. Yeah. 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 And I think too, as a smaller company or we, I think you, you know, like you can go out in thin ice. You can do things that the big companies can't do because they've got, they've got too many departments, too many people, too many people thinking about it. But I think, I think there's opportunities when these things happen for smaller firms to be able to be more nimble than some of the big companies for sure. Yeah. I think it's, it may be easier to turn the, uh, you know, the patrol boat in the bathtub than, than to turn the battleship, right? Yeah. But, it, it, but I tell people all the time, you know, my leaders and everything, when you go to talk to some big, huge corporation, you're just talking to a person. Yeah. yeah. You know, they're a person in a in a department, in a division, and a division's in a region, regional organization. The regional organization is part of the, the parent organization. And they go, oh my God, it's Microsoft. Or, oh my God, it's... No, you're not going to talk to Microsoft. You know, there's not like, yeah. it's not like you're not going to a building that's all made out of steel with blinking lights and one, what do you want? Like the great Oz. <laughs> it's just, it's just a person. And so you can actually be all these things we're talking about. You can do that at the individual level, the, the team level, the project team level, the department and the divisional level. And you can absolutely do it. You don't have to wait for senior leadership to do it. And, and also senior leadership can do it. The CEOs, the C-suite of all these corporations could have pulled everybody in and said, this is what we're going to do and inform the board. If you guys want to get involved in this, you got a lot of brain power and we've got two weeks and we're going to come up with a way to deal with this. They could have done that and they could have started issuing a change of direction. And even if it's a battleship, you know, but you know what? Everybody thought it was going to go away. Everybody hoped it was going to go away. Yeah, yeah. And they kind of got in the fetal position in the corner, went wah, 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 you know, didn't want to hear the noise. And, uh, Anyway, it's it's a great case study. It was it was tragic that what it did to the country, but um, everybody that survived it, I guarantee you, it's gonna be like people that survived the Great Depression. There's gonna be yeah entrepreneurs in the next ten years that you'll tie it right back to their start was figuring the world out yeah. during the pandemic. Yeah, I really I really do see that. I really saw a lot of people really shifting and growing during that time. So using that as an opportunity for. You know, like the landscape change. Okay, great. That's good for a small company, right? Because it, at least, at least for my my view, was like the landscape change. Great. So now there's opportunity. You know, and so for 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 us who maybe you know everybody knew what their position was in the market, right? And now the whole market shifted. So okay, well now maybe I've got a spot where I can kind of ease in. So near near where I lived, there was a small sandwich shop, and it was surrounded with all these boutique restaurants of all kinds, and when they shut everything down, they took a bunch of plywood and put some two by fours in the back of it and they spray painted um, pickup and they had a phone number. Well, nobody could get any food, if you remember, and yeah. you, you weren't even sure you could go to the grocery store and everything. And people would drive by and see it. And they put a, a, a folding table outside of the restaurant in the parking lot and they had a couple of girls standing there. And you could call in and they would get your order. Now, I saw that the first time and I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. It's like a bunch of kids selling Kool-Aid, you know, but it's a real business. Two months later, they had a tent, a huge tent. They had like eight tables. They had bags of food to go stacked up on all these tables. They had a whole system. There were cars lined up, uh, lined up 
all the way through the parking lot, you know, trying to get in to pick up their orders like this. And all around them are restaurants. All around them are other restaurant owners. Nobody else is doing it. They did it for the entire first year of the pandemic. And I'm thinking, me and my wife, you know, we're going, nobody, nobody's copying them. (laughs) <laughs> it's interesting. Same thing here. Nobody copied us with that training. I thought that I thought, well, for sure, the big companies will take over. Like I, I just happened to be first, but nobody did, and we ended up being the only ones doing it, which was really weird. Well, yeah, that that's that that's on you too. That's that's <laughs> that's really good that you did that. Yeah, interesting. So, what's the, what are some other things that we should be thinking about when it comes to strategic leadership? We didn't get to cover everything in this discussion, but maybe some other uh, points that are in the book that we should we should be aware of as leaders. Well, I guess the key takeaway is strategy is about thinking big picture. It's about zooming out. You need to do it as a, as an exercise, like I mentioned earlier. I, I suggest you do it every day, but as a team and everything, you should do it also. You should have. You don't have to go on a retreat. I mean, companies that say we're going to retreat every year for a couple of days, that's not, that's not a habit. You know, that's, that's just a check in the box thing. So you need to do it as a regular, a regular thing. And, and when you do that, the whole organization will start to think strategically. Then they'll start thinking about what everybody else is doing around them strategically. The context will be a strategic constant, a context. You don't have to go to school to learn it. You don't have to be a genius to learn it. You don't have to be somebody with a, a, high, a fancy title to do it. So once you've empowered and enabled everybody to think this way, then make sure that you listen to what what you what you're seeing and what you're what you're sniff, sniffing on the wind. Don't ignore the actual information. Be intellectually curious. Suck it all in. Take in all the different angles. Talk to people that you would never talk to. Look at industries that have nothing to do with your industry, and ask them things. How do you how do you what's your supply chain look like? Oh well, well we move rabbit food. Well, how do you do that? What do you run into? You, you'd be amazed at the kinds of things you find that are crossover solutions because in the rabbit food industry 10 years ago, they had a crisis and they solved it this way. Now you're in that same crisis because you have a linear supply chain that you run into the, for the first time. But in the rabbit food industry, they solved it 10 years ago and you never would have known unless you talked to somebody. So thinking strategically, acting strategically and, and making decisions in a strategic way is a behavior pattern it's it's a habit and it's a continuum that i can't say that enough and um i think that if you do that you're actually a strategist you're a visionary and and turning a dream into a concept and a concept into a strategy is something everybody should be doing for themselves and and leaders definitely should be doing for their organizations wow such powerful advice so listeners uh I really encourage you to pick up this book. It's called Be Visionary Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization. Uh, This, I mean, really, this is such a fantastic book. I know we we just really scratched the surface of everything that's in there. But I think that, uh, you know, leaders, we can't just be looking in the rearview mirror. We've got to be looking at the windshield. We've got to be looking and considering what's happening in our world and how can we, what are the opportunities, what are the threats, and what are we doing to, 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 to basically act uh, to make sure that, that we take advantage or mitigate the risk from these things that are coming our way. So, Marty, I really appreciate you being on the show. How can people find out uh, more about you and your books? Well, the books are all on Amazon.com, but if you go to MartyStrongBeNimble.com, everything's there. Okay, fantastic. We'll put links in the show notes for those resources. Uh, and again, I really highly encourage uh, leaders that you start thinking strategically 
and you act like visionaries and you pick up Marty's book because I think this is going to help you uh, be more effective in the long term. Marty, thanks for being on the show and thanks for sharing uh, this, well, both your books, but uh, and all this, all the uh, uh, wisdom that you provided today about strategic leadership, I think it's a, it gave us a lot to think about. I really do appreciate that. Well, thanks for having me on, John. I, I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks again. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share so we can continue to build a world with better bosses. Until next time, this is John Rennie saying, take care and lead well. Thank you for listening to Deep Leadership. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all you do. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information and updates, please visit our website at www.deepleadershippodcast.com or johnsrenny.com. Until next time, take care. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, that's No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. Touchdown! On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric ass. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electric Acid.